Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? Crazy, man. I know. We have a guest today who is going to be putty in our hands. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Bird, my co-host and cohort, and doing a spit take, Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. And yes, all kidding aside, we're going to actually have a really substantive conversation with Aaron Muterich, who is chairman of the board of directors of the Toy Association. If you want to know all about the history of Crazy Aaron's, his company, you can listen to our previous conversation with him. So, Aaron, thanks for being with us again this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's just start out with talking about the shift in Toy Fair, because that's been a real controversial issue. There's a lot of chatter about it, and we'd love to hear what the thinking is behind it from the Toy Association's perspective. Sure. Well, when the board of directors uh, met a few months ago to discuss the future of Toy Fair, we had an opportunity to take stock of the world in a way I think that was different than we might have previously because of the the loss of two toy fairs in a row. There was an opportunity to kind of look at the industry fresh, whole, put the sacred cows on the table. And in doing so, uh, obviously, you know, the, the determination was that toy fair fit the buyer seller marketplace schedule best in the fall selling for a Christmas that was 15 months in front of it. Right. One of the things that's happened is people have called me about it is they feel as though this is now a toy fair that is going to serve the great big toy companies, the great big retailers, and some people may be left out. How, how are you guys approaching that? Being a middle-sized toy business that used to be a very, very small toy business, <laughs> just me at a tiny table, right? I absolutely um, understand that perspective. And it was part of my thinking in my comments in the, those board meetings and where where I felt the organization and the show should go. It's definitely in my mind as I am having uh, conversations in the board and, and offering opinions. I think that there is a reality that the world of super short supply chain from 9,000 miles away is not coming back anytime soon. And combine that with all of the things that we're doing in the industry, more complex products that require more tooling and more advanced time, even for a small manufacturer who might only have a single product or two products, they're working with the same factories that the mid and large size companies are, and the lead times continue to extend and grow. And then you also have uh, retailers who, although it's great to show up a few months ahead and make buying decisions, it's very, very hard to manage that supply chain to actually make sure those products are at that retailer uh, if they're placing that order in, say, late February uh, for them to have material in September. Even if you are a small manufacturer, there's a lot of risk mitigation that's going to be put in place by moving this show up and also a lot of enabling of allowing products that couldn't have existed otherwise to be offered for a Christmas because there's an appropriate schedule to develop them. So, Aaron, I ran a survey uh, about a month ago, trying to take the temperature of the industry on the move. And one of the things I wanted to ask was, how do you feel about the move? And almost 50% were happy. Mm-hmm. 22% said they were unhappy. And then you had some ambivalence. And what I thought was interesting was when we looked at respondents 
response to the question, will you attend? 62% said they would attend. Mm-hmm. And 16% said they stay fewer days, but they would attend. So it, it looks like you've got the majority of the industry happy about what you're doing uh, and planning to come. Yet you do have folks uh, who feel a little alienated by the move. These are smaller people, uh, typically. We respect very much what you had to decide. It was a tough call, and you weren't going to win <laughs> with the public no matter what you did. History will dictate whether this was a good move or not. So what do you say to those who feel a little alienated by the move? Sure. The first thing I would ask them to think about is that the Toy Association is a member-run organization. So our biggest industry trade show in North America isn't run by a trade show company that is making decisions independent of the needs of man, you know, the manufacturers and the buyers. And so your participation in the Toy Association matters. Your comments to me matter. Your comments to other board members matter. And I would say we're all busy running our business uh, on a day-to-day basis, but that means that as board members might receive very few direct comments and feedback, it makes each person's comment count even more because they're adding to the conversation. And I think all the board members are surprisingly open to the world of ideas and contributing and sharing uh, when we get together as a group. That said, given that we are member-driven and that we're open to ideas, this is where we have committed to moving Toy Fair to the fall. But as market forces in the world continue to change around us over the coming years and decade, we'll continue to keep our ear to the railroad tracks and try to make sure that we are we are giving the best possible experience for, uh, for all of these businesses to be successful. And I think one of the things you've just said is really important, that it's going to be an ongoing exploration because in the toy industry, if something's happened for two years, it's always been this way. <laughs> and so it's a little bit, it's a little bit challenging to see how it's going to go. And typically when we see products in September, they're very much behind closed doors and they may go through a lot of evolution before they see the mass market. That's led to speculation that this is going to be largely a closed booth show. So from a show perspective, how do you hope to maintain the level of energy and excitement and color that is that is typically what you see in all the shots of Toy Fair? So quickly putting on my, my personal hat, right? Crazy Aaron, not the chair of the board. I think this show in Dallas is going to be a bit of a hybrid, right? And it's going to be a bit of a stepping stone to what Toy Fair New York 2023 is going to look like. That's just a natural thing. So you will see people who continue to have uh, their closed booths and closed showrooms, but you will also see more of an actual show floor. And the signups began last week, and I know that their bookings have been very strong. So putting back on my chairperson hat, it is important to have a show. Toy Fair traditionally has met the needs of many, many kinds of stakeholders. That is media, that is press, that is financial analysts, that is buyers, that is manufacturers, all of those things. That cannot be successful if it's all just offices and suites and conference rooms. And the energy and excitement of Toy Fair, what got me into this industry of like, oh my gosh, this world exists and it's amazing and cool and fun. That has to exist in an open show floor where that energy energy is pulsing. And I believe it will continue. Aaron, 
For many companies, this is going to mean moving back the design process and production process. This is jolting. Will you be impacted in your business from a calendar standpoint in your planning? And if you are, how are you managing that? At Crazy Errands, I think we we are absolutely impacted. And I think that we are only beginning to realize maybe some of the new pressures that would exist if we want to be as ambitious as possible on this new schedule. Uh, and I have uh, spoken publicly about the, the challenges uh, in a letter I did for Toy News Tuesday, challenges for all businesses to adjust this calendar. Because in business, you can't just say, well, we'll wait six months, do nothing, and then we'll be caught <laughs> up to the new schedule. Right? The, the, right. the truth is you are now immediately behind the eight ball. Right. Schedule. Right. Um, but I also believe there are fundamental opportunities in this new schedule that are a chance for every company to grow and expand their business if they can if they can find them. They had intrinsic opportunities in the existing schedule. These are different ones that have not yet been discovered. Um, so it, we're we're working pretty hard here. We're burning the midnight oil. But I am super jazzed that we will three years from now be like, gosh, it it really was time to make that change. We sure are glad that happened and the hard work we put in paid off. And I think we're also at a huge time of transition in the toy industry. And I'm curious as to whether or not the pandemic accelerated something that needed to happen anyway, in terms of the industry was changing and, and production schedules are moving earlier and all of the stuff that, that is impacting this decision. But do you think that the pandemic accelerated something that needed to happen in the first place? I'm 100% sure of it. I mean, it's just that simple. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the endless conversations about what is Dallas? Um, should the Toy Association continue to have a show in Dallas? What's going on in LA, and uh, El Segundo, et cetera? Like all those things that were happening in the fall timeframe were sort of these two worlds, but there was no rock hammer just <laughs> smashing the rock into two and forcing us to have a reckoning of what's going on in the industry to make a change. Um, the pandemic was that. Aaron, do you feel that people understand the importance of the Dallas show this year? I'm not so sure that they realize that this is Toy Fair. Uh, there will be no February. <laughs> Whereas in the past, they may have not gone to Dallas or they may have been a bit indifferent about it. It's the show. Do you feel that the association has gotten that message across and do you need to pound it a lot harder? Now that the booth registrations have come out and the association over the next weeks will be able to talk about and show who will be there in an open fashion on a, on a show floor and who will be in attendance and how uh, I believe that attendance will grow to exceed previous years. So you'll start to see some momentum. Uh, I think then that message is much easier to communicate. It's easier to communicate with actual data and facts rather than just sort of trying to hype, hype, hype. So hopefully that, you know, we see that happening in the next few weeks. I have to imagine any toy company is desperate at this point for the opportunity to get physically connected with buyers. Yeah. And whether you're ready or not, whether it's your optimal situation or not, you are going to benefit by being there physically and being with the buyers and being with the other vendors and manufacturers. We, we all know that that sort of that stew of all of us stirring together and conversations and hallway connections, it 
it has a real benefit. And I'll be there and I'm looking forward to seeing everyone. Aaron, what do you feel is the ultimate function of Toy Fair? The ultimate function of Toy Fair is to bring the entire industry into one place so that the non-tangible knowledge transfer of what our industry does and who we are, the vibe, the mood, the ethic is at least communicated on an annual basis to everyone in attendance. And you see where the industry has gone over 20, 50 years with that, you know, increase in play value, attention to safety, all of those things are, are shared universally across the industry. And the reason is because we're in one place, it's a competitive environment, and we're all looking a little bit to the left and a little to the right and seeing what everyone else is doing. And that's much harder to do through looking at other people's stuff on the web or just silently walking the shelves at Target to see what your competitors are up to. I love your answer. I I agree with your answer. And I would just assert that buying and selling is not the ultimate reason for the toy fair. It's one of the supporting temples for an event that brings us all together. I call it the big brain, when all the components of the industry are together in one place at one time. It's a creative pool that takes place. I often tell new people, the most important thing that may happen to you is the person you meet in line to get coffee. That's right. I'm very glad to hear you say that. And I think it really speaks to what Chris had asked you about before, about the importance of making this a show that's dynamic and fun to walk the aisles. The the buying and selling is necessary, right? That is what you take back to your finance department so that you get the money to do what you need to do. But it is not the whole picture. If it was we would be on some kind of e-marketplace and we would find incredible efficiencies doing it without ever knowing each other's names. I know you haven't made these decisions in a vacuum. I'm sure that you talk to retailers about this as well. What's the advantage to retailers in moving the show to September? So for the past, I want to say eight years, retailers have been members of the board of the Toy Association. This is when it went from really being a manufacturer's association to more of an industry association. So they uh, were part of this conversation uh, about moving Toy Fair and continue to be part of every conversation, which is helpful. For the largest retailers, their buying cycles already involve decision-making 14 and 15 months out, or at least beginning to consider buying decisions 15 months out. So this move to the fall toy fair works with their schedules. For the smaller retailers, I think many of them made decisions in February. I know specialty retailers, of course, uh, especially proprietor-owned specialty retailers who are more nimble, made buying decisions later and later so that they could have more confidence that they're staying on trend. But I think there are opportunities in, in seeing what's coming a little further ahead. Um, and coordinating and organizing your efforts a little more rather than sort of last minute, okay, I need to make some decisions today and I'm just going to go by my gut. There's an opportunity to be more strategic. But for the smaller retailers, they really take advantage of what's happened with the bigger retailers because unless you get that Walmart, Target, Amazon order, you can't produce the product. So some of the smaller retailers get to pick and choose from things that have already been pre-curated, if you will, by acceptance at the larger retail chains. Is that 
me just being waggish or, or does there, is there some validity in that? I think there are, is a class, a large class of toy products where unless a mass merchandiser commits to them, they will not exist. They may, and they won't even exist where there's a special skew for specialty or a different form. They just, the dollars are not there to, uh, to do all the R and D and tooling and investment. There, there is a separate class of products that would exist for the specialty market regardless, but I think you're, I think you're dead on. And I also want to be really clear just because toy fair is moving to fall does not mean that specialty retailers can only make their buying decisions at that fall show. Right. There, right. there is Astra after all. <laughs> well, they can go to the show, they can see things and then they can follow up. And we're in a world where we're much more comfortable doing follow-ups electronically and over Zoom than we ever, ever were, especially with buyers. There will continue to be um, January, February gift marts and Toy Fest West and the Astra show in June. The Toy Association does not control the whole industry. We are a piece of the industry. We're trying to meet the need that we feel is best aligned with our members. Um, But part of the greatness of an open and free market is seeing how all the different players move to adjust and see where opportunity might be. And it creates a competitive environment, I think, that will lead to a better result a couple years down the road. Aaron, one of the questions we had on the survey was to ask people if the show was not in New York where would they like it to be? And Las Vegas came out number one out of 10 options at 23%, followed by Orange County and Florida by 20. What is so attractive about Las Vegas? that It is attracting so many shows. Uh, And why do you think there was not broader support for an L.A. show? I can't speak to why there wasn't broader support for a a Las Vegas or a Los Angeles show. I do think there's something to be said strategically for if you're going to make a big change, make one big change at a time. (laughs) You know, a lot of balls in the air. And, and I say this as someone, you know, coming from software, I like an iterative approach. That's my, that's sort of how I approach problem solving. You change too many variables at once. You'll never really know which one, which one you got wrong. And, uh, you know, assuming that you, you're looking to continue to improve your process after you get your results. So, so there's that. Um, I do think that there are, I know for a fact, there are a limited number of cities. Las Vegas is one of them. Um, probably Orlando Convention Center is another with the infrastructure to be able to support a show of our size. The board has made it very clear that Toy Fair 2023 is in New York and we have dates for 24 and 25, but we are always looking at this. Again, how do we make this the best show for our business? So I would offer the goal is to grow the top, to make our industry bigger so that we are all doing more business. I think we can do that more effectively with all of our creativity and ingenuity. We're not looking to increase costs, right? We want to keep costs to a minimum, but how can we make this the biggest show it can be for the buck? And New York does offer a number of intrinsic benefits. One is access to the financial community. The other is access to the press. It's much easier to convince someone to take a cab ride over to the Javits Center than it is to get on a plane to go to Las Vegas. That's a personal opinion, but I think that it's it's just people are lazy. We all, right? There's only so many hours in the day and you're only going to get so much of people's time. 
I've been kicking around this business long enough to remember back in the 80s when there was a big question as to whether or not video games would be allowed to exhibit. And when you talk about expanding the top, are you looking at inviting other categories of merchandise, related merchandise, to be there? We already have safety and testing and, and services showing at Toy Fair, but are there other product categories that the board has seen might be relevant to add? This is an active area of discussion <laughs> in the board, for sure. Um, there are some areas that are opportunities. There are other areas where the opportunity might be balanced with a liability. So without being too vague, I think we've seen a tremendous growth in the total size of our industry during the pandemic. Really tremendous growth of toy and game and plaything sales. And, you know, given the demographics of the United States, where we, we aren't getting an increasingly large percentage of children, I'm a little bit surprised, but I think it's fantastic and wonderful. And I think there's a lot of cultural shifts that are an opportunity for our industry as well, looking at the kids become adults, but adults can play with toys too. Right. And adults can continue to retain the, the fun and joy of their youth as they move on into adulthood and play games, et cetera. So I think there are a lot of opportunities even beyond video games or expanded opportunities in licensing or all of the, or juvenile products, all the sort of areas that you might look at an industry map and see what can we create that's new that just didn't even exist before. That's, that's true growth, not necessarily cannibalizing or moving into someone else's turf. I know that the toy association does much more than toy fair. One of your big areas is lobbying. What's going on in that area right now? In the uh, government affairs department, there is a lot going on. Yeah. There's no no question that our federal government is in a bit of bit of a state, right? There's a paralysis. It's very hard to get things done, and I think even amongst the seasoned lobbyists there is a frustration that that there's a dysfunctionality that the sort of the basic needs of government cannot actually be executed. Um, down in Washington, D.C. And I think you're seeing as a result of that a lot more activity at the state level. Um, it's harder because it's distributed to 50 places. We sell into a national market and um, the laws of one state will affect the products that are found in the other 49. And so there's a need for a lot of resources there to uh, monitor proposed legislation, work with state representatives, to uh, get everyone to understand what, who we are as an industry, what we're trying to do, how we can ensure toy safety using science-based methods that are testable and enforceable and um, create a level playing field for everybody. And I think the toy industry has always been a lightning rod industry. People leverage it in order to, to make statements and things like that. And if you look at the history of the Toy Association going back to 1911, that has been a constant battle to try to maintain the safety of toys. Toys were declared an essential industry during both World War I and World War II. So it really is a big challenge to try to mitigate the, the drama. Right. Well, if, if play is the work of the child, then toys are the tools of the work. And we love our children and the children are the future of this country and of the world. And it's important that they have safe play. This industry, I think, is particularly aligned with that. You know, a, a lot of industries really are like battling regulation in a lot of ways. I think the toy industry is, is very open to creating safe product because an unsafe toy from a rogue manufacturer hurts our entire industry. Yeah. At the same time, it's important that rules are enacted that are enforceable, testable, 
rep, uh, can be reproduced again and again um, and are level across the playing field. The toy industry is changing as we speak. And uh, we have uh, Hasbro, which owns the one. We have Mattel coming out with a new Barbie movie. And we have the walls between entertainment and play are coming down. Is there any plans to reach out to the entertainment industry and have them play a bigger role in the toy industry? I don't know that it's entirely new. Right. In the 80s, you had cartoon shows that sold action figures and then they made movies and then they had a theme park. And right, it, um, but I do think that, you know, if you look at the board membership, you know, Disney is a member of the board. Disney sells a lot of toys. They don't actually make the toys or manufacture the toys, but they are part of the creative process of those toys coming onto children's shelves and being part of their lives. And so they are on the board. They have a say. And, and I think they offer a unique perspective. And you also, you get that perspective from companies like Mattel and Hasbro as they increase their their sort of entertainment arms and grow into uh, that space and have movie production companies and studios, et cetera. It has always struck me that our in our industry, toy companies grow to a point where they sell themselves to a bigger company rather than go into second or third rounds of funding or even going public. And some of that comes, I, I believe, from a lack of education in terms of how to get funding and to go public. Could the Toy Association play a, an educational role in helping people in these companies better understand how to grow and even as a matchmaker? for Angel and other investors. Do you think there's a role there? I think the association has a tremendous amount of knowledge and access to resources and experts. And one of the things I would like to effectuate during my term as chair is to increase the educational outreach of the association. Recognizing people are busy and oftentimes the thing that might benefit them the most that is in the resource pool of the association is the thing they don't even know to ask for because they're busy running their business, right? So that there might be other financial options or ways of growing. And I'm hopeful that as we get back to a fall toy fair and possibly a summer business conference on a regular schedule, that we can offer a wider range of resources that make it more appealing for different people in the industry at different stages and sizes to really take something away, again, that grows the entire pie for everybody. This has been a little bit of a serious conversation, but we want to have a little bit of fun with you. So we're going to ask you the question we've asked everybody on season four of the Playground podcast. What was your favorite play experience as a child? This is a simple toy. I derived endless pleasure from it. And maybe you can see the connection to where I landed today. It was one of those water oil filled jars that you would turn upside down and slowly it would blub, blub, blub yeah, the colors yeah, yeah. and the bubbles. I don't even know that it has a name. Has a name. Yeah, no, yeah I, I, I had something like that. It was a shell gas tank and you turned you pretended to fill your matchbox cars with it and you turned it over and it, it you know, all the gas. It was amazing. <laughs> we call that today a sensory toy. Right. Especially if you shine a spotlight through it onto your wall, you kind of get that 60s oil water concert effect. <laughs> right. right. 
And I could watch that for hours and hours <laughs> through a sunbeam. And that was, yes, a very memorable part of my childhood. That's great. Well, Aaron Muterick, uh, chairman of the board of directors of the Toy Association and Crazy Aaron of Crazy Aaron's Putty World. Thank you so much for being with us today. I think you've helped a lot of people and we really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Playground Podcast and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are relating to the toy industry right now. And one that is top of mind for everybody, not just in the toy industry, but throughout the culture is inflation. And sad to say it, but prices are going up. And Richard, you've been looking into this. I have. We ran a uh, survey on Global Toy News. I guess not surprisingly, almost 100% of respondents have taken a price increase in 2022. Just so people aren't confused, we didn't want to know about 2021. We strictly wanted to focus on this year. So 95% said yes, they have. Retailers not so much, Chris. 81% did yes. So some retailers are apparently eating these increases. They may be eating the increases, or there may be something which is unique to the toy industry, which I sort of think of as the stealth price increase, which means that because so much product is new, the consumer doesn't go into the store and have a frame of reference because they're not repurchasing the same thing that they bought last season. So if something costs what it costs, they go, if I want it, I'm going to pay that. It's not like when I go to the supermarket and I suddenly realize, hey, milk just jumped or cereal just jumped because that is a staple that I buy every week. So I feel those price increases much more than if it's a toy and it's a new toy and it costs X. Let's, let's talk for a minute about where are eggs and milk in the toy industry. And I would think if you're if you are constantly buying Hot Wheels. Good point. If you're constantly buying action figures, you're constantly buying Barbie dolls. For your child or as a collector, you're going to be price sensitive. If what you're buying is one-off, I think there's going to be less price sensitivity because you never thought about that product before. I, I think that's a, actually a really great point. If I'm collecting Five Surprise or LOL or whatever, and I'm used to paying $9.99 for it and suddenly it's $12.99, then I'm going to notice that. I think I think that's actually completely accurate. Yeah. That's where the price sensitivity is, and I'm going to guess... Those people who are not taking the price increases, they're the people who have these evergreen price-sensitive products. We want to know, do you plan to take a price increase later in the year? Uh, Chris, a slight majority said yes. Apparently, people are not sure what's coming in terms of inflation. So at this point, almost half the industry does not anticipate taking a price increase. There's another factor in the toy industry as well, which is the desire of parents not to disappoint a child. So they will reach a little bit further into the wallet or the pocketbook in order to deliver something that's going to make joy for a child. They might cut back for themselves, but they're going to try not to disappoint the child if they can. And then Chris, in general, not a majority, but plurality of uh, toy companies and toy retailers, they're reporting to us that inflation 
is running between 10 and 15 percent for toys. That's what it was running in 2021, and that's what it's running now. And that is higher than the general consumer product index, which is 8.3%, I believe. Right, right. As great as a survey is, it's always a snapshot of a point in time. And clearly what this underscores is that we are still in a state of flux, that there is no baseline normal yet. We're hoping that we may get to that, but but we'll see. Chris, I think the big takeaway here is if you're a toy company and you feel you're all alone out there and you know you're getting hit with price increases, this survey shows you're not alone. Other people are taking price increases. Your retail customers, some of them may say they're not, but based on what we see, they are accepting price increases, not on everything, but certainly on toys that are not as price sensitive. So you're not alone. It's a problem and a challenge for everyone. As always, it's about what the market will bear. And we thank you for bearing with us. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy and Beacon Media Group. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you next time.